You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert, Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. Listen, when I last talked to my guest today, I had just come back from a deep tissue massage. Now, I don't know if you've ever received a deep tissue massage, but this is not the relaxing kind, all right? It was quite an experience. It's something I do from time to time to get a little bit of extra work. But man, I was so sore. I was sore. She she put the elbows in me. All right, my therapist, I thought, I thought she didn't like me. You know, I was like, why is she trying to? And here's the thing. When she's, when she's giving the massage, she asks, is the pressure okay? And being a guy, you're not gonna be like, no, you gotta, can you lighten up a little? I'm just like, it's okay, you know, digging down deep. And, uh, but it felt amazing afterwards. I was a little sore for a day or two, but my body just really felt in balance again. And we do, we tend to hold up a lot of tension in our body, in our muscles, in our tissues, and it can develop into some little uh, pain spots, you know, some quote, knots in your tissues. And so I had a couple of knots right under my shoulder blades that she um, lovingly stabbed me with with her elbows. All right. So, but that was the last time I talked to my guest. And, you know, just to share a little bit with you, I did a show on massage benefits back in the day. All right. Way back in the day, a couple of years ago on the Model Health Show. We put that in the show notes. But I just wanted to share this with you. As a new small study found that massage therapy is an effective way to alleviate muscle soreness after exercise and improve blood flow. And this was published in physical medicine and rehabilitation. All right, so there's a little bit of evidence that this works, but there's a lot more anecdotal evidence. All right, a lot of anecdotal evidence. And even going back all the way to Hippocrates, right, the father of modern medicine, you know, he's often referred to as, and he said that the physician should be skilled in the art of rubbing. And he's talking about massage. And this is something that was used regularly in hospitals for you know, for centuries, and it fell out of favor more recently. And we're talking about somewhere around the 1940s and 50s with the really big boom of very strong drugs, you know, medications. And so that practice fell out of favor. But we all need that connection. We all need um, the other benefit, by the way, oxytocin, all right? Just getting human contact, we release oxytocin, which is clinically proven to help reduce cortisol, right? That So the, the stress hormone that gets a lot of bad rap in the media, but it's not all bad. Right? We need all of these things, but we need things to be in balance. And speaking of balance, we also need to have time to play. We're all getting our work on. We're all doing a lot of stuff, parenting, adulting, but we need time to play, to have fun, to even compete. What a big part of our lives that we so often push to the side as we get a little bit older. And it really engages something in our brain, something that really helps to keep us young and to keep us driving to become better. So when's the last time that you competed in something? And check this out. This is really fascinating. This is from our guest today's brand new book, which is amazing. This is one of my favorite books of the year. And I've read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books. This is definitely one of the top books. And it's because of the stories. It's because of his ability to really dissect things and find out what actually works. So we're going to be talking about performance today. We're going to be talking about recovery and all kinds of good stuff. It's good stuff. But check this out. Participatory sports and fitness is an $85 billion business in the United States and is growing at an annualized rate of 3.3%. And that is significantly faster than the rest of the economy. All right. So people are engaging in play. People are engaging in sports, you know, the rec sports. And it's a big growing thing. But the question is, how long are we going to be able to do this and do it healthfully and get the benefits? Because stuff is going to happen probably along the way, you know, with the aging human body. And so what are the things that we can do to be able to play on? And that's the name of the new book. And my guest today is going to come on here and talk about some of the good details. Before we do that, I want to give a quick shout out to since we're talking about performance. Listen to this. A study published in Medicine and Science and Sports and Exercise tested 30 healthy athletes for six weeks to record the effects of cordyceps on their performance. The group that added cordyceps to their daily regimen had twice the oxygen uptake of the control group. And oxygen is essential in preventing fatigue and supplying nutrients to your muscles and preventing the buildup of lactate in your muscles as well. Another study done by the same group also showed a, a 9% increase in aerobic activity from taking cordyceps, right? So you might be asking, what? 
these cordyceps? What is that? This is a medicinal mushroom. It's been used for thousands of years. It's one of the top probably five things in Chinese medicine. And now we've got sound clinical data to back up its efficacy. All right. Now, what I use and recommend for your pre-workout is Shroom Tech Sport. And this is the formula that comes from Onnit. And now you might think, okay, well, Cordyceps sounds good in that study. Well, what about Onnit's product? Are they actually using the good stuff? And here's what they did. They invested, and this, this is a lot of money to fund a study like this. And it's a double-blind, placebo-controlled study utilizing on its Shroom Tech Sport formula. And this was done a 12-week clinical trial at Florida State University. And here's the results. They found that utilizing for your pre-workout Shroom Tech Sport showed a 12% increase in bench press reps. All right, so if you're getting your bench on, all right, it's going to help you take it to another level. Shown to increase combined bench press and squat reps, so back squat reps, by 7%. So if you're doing your supersets, you're going to get more out of your body. And also shown to increase cardio performance by 8.8%, right on par with that study that I shared with you earlier. So this is the good stuff, all right? They're sourcing things the right way. We're talking about organic, no crazy stuff, no pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, genocides. It was... Side means to kill. You don't want that in your products, all right? And so they're doing stuff the right way. And this is a company who really cares so much so that they put their money where their mouth is and funded double-blind placebo-controlled clinical trials on their products, which could have turned out bad for them, all right? But it turned out to be that the product actually works really well. All right, so definitely check it out. Now, here's the thing. You might have heard about this before. This might be your first time. So I want you to get a free trial. You're going to get a free bottle of Shroom Tech Sport. So I want you to go to themodelhealthshow.com forward slash sport. All right. Themodelhealthshow.com forward slash sport. You get a free bottle of Shroom Tech right now. Head over there and do it now. Check it out. Grab your free bottle while it lasts. And on that note, let's get to the iTunes review of the week. Another five-star review titled Game and Life Changer by In the Bay 2727. I've only been listening to the Model Health Show for a few weeks now, but it has completely impacted my life. I am so eager to learn everything that this podcast can teach me about my body and my health. I appreciate the factual evidence behind every single topic that is presented in the show. Every day there are articles and shows where people just say mindless things with no support, and that would never happen here. I love this podcast, and I wish there were more hours in the day for me to learn from more episodes. Please keep doing what you're doing, Sean. Awesome. That is amazing. In the Bay 2727. Thank you so much for that acknowledgement. And if you're if this is actually you're in the Bay, that's where I am right now. Just so happen to be I'm here in San Francisco with my very special guest. And man, I'm very, very happy that things align, the stars align to be able to be here with him personally. And I'd like to welcome today my guest, Jeff Bercovici. And he's a journalist, sports fan, and athlete. Very much in that order, according to him. He is a San Francisco bureau chief for Inc. covering tech and entrepreneurship and a former senior editor and writer at Forbes. He has also written for the Wall Street Journal, GQ, Details, Glamour, and the New York Times, and I'd like to welcome to the Model Health Show, Jeff Rakovici. How are you doing today, man? Pretty good, pretty good. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure, man. It's my pleasure. Definitely glad to be able to connect. So, I love your book. I've already shared that with you. Absolutely love it. I think you have an amazing writing style. And um, I'd love to dive into your superhero origin story first. So, let's talk about, first, how you got interested in writing, and then let's talk about how you got interested in sports. Oh, okay. Uh, writing, uh, always since I was a kid, pretty much. It's, uh, it's something I actually enjoyed doing, you know, in school. And I, I, I remember I had a, a, in eighth grade, I had a teacher who we had to do a, like a year-end writing project. And uh, I stayed up all night doing it. I had a lot of fun with it. And then my, my teacher, she was like this former re- retired nun, like very, very oh, stern man. and strict, but had a little bit of a sense of humor. And she wrote on it, uh, she wrote, you could be a writer. You, or you should consider being a writer. And I thought, wow. I should consider being a writer. So uh, pretty linear origin story from there. Wow, yeah. that's so cool. Now, where does sports come into play? Because you obviously have a love of sports and competition, and you can just feel that thread through the book. 
yeah, I always loved sports. You know, growing up in Wisconsin, did did all the regular stuff, normal sporty kid, not not terribly talented in anything, but uh, very. You know, I was a grinder. Was one of those kids who yeah. uh, they would uh, the coach would would let me let me onto the team so I could uh, demonstrate hustle for the other kids. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Uh, but um, always kept that. But like most people, you know, when I when I got out of college and I joined the workforce, it kind of fell away for a few years. Yeah. So in my mid thirties, uh, I got really back into sports. I started playing soccer, which um, I, I had played but never really seriously. But I got really serious about it, like focused. Was playing two or three times a week with different uh, league teams, right. and, and you um, didn't even play in high school, right? N- not. I mean, other than you know, I played some like intramural games, but right. I, I didn't. I was terrible at it and I didn't take it seriously but you know as an adult I just got super into it like and uh with loving it absolutely loving it uh, as you know the thing I look forward to every week but my body just couldn't keep up I was getting all of these injuries you know and I really like from the first time I stepped on a field I, I realized like this is what it means to be over 30 <laughs> you know yeah. you're not you're not a kid anymore uh, and it was great because I was getting fitter and I felt like I, like I was getting fitter and faster and I felt like in that way I was getting younger, but the injuries just didn't stop and it got so bad. I, I had this, uh, that kind of culminated in this terrible back injury that I had to have emergency surgery for. My surgeon told me if I didn't have a surgery that day, I would I could have permanent paralysis. So I did wow, that and then it was a long way back from that, you know, really a lot of months off where I was, I was uh, rehabbing and working back. And in that time, I spent a lot of time thinking about this uh, this phenomenon that we all see around us. You know, as sports fans, we see all of our favorite athletes um, just hanging around longer. You know, hanging around, having having the peaks of their careers later and later. You know, yeah. people like this is new. Absolutely, I mean, new because you hear them talking about it every time you watch sports. Now they're saying, you know, no one's ever won a, a major tennis tournament at the age of Roger Federer. No one's ever played more minutes, you know, in the NBA at this level like LeBron James. Whatever sport it is, yeah. they're talking about these people who are, you know. 35, 38, 40, Tom Brady, uh, setting new records. And I said, what's going on here that all of these people can compete so many levels above what I'm trying to do and they're healthy and they're performing their best. What are they doing that I'm not doing and what actually makes a difference? Wow. And that's what the book dives into and you do it so well. But just one thing I want to talk about a parallel. It was eighth grade. Wow. You know, I've got your book sitting right here. Play on. And we were talking earlier, and even my awesome uh, AV guy, Mark here, he, he didn't even know that I wrote Sleep Smarter. This is our first time meeting today. And he was like, I love that book. You know, so me writing this book, and he, he said thank you for writing it, which was, it just hit my soul. And I go back to eighth grade, Miss Blackmore, and she was my English teacher, and we had a poetry, poetry project. And, you know, I wrote these little haikus and tankas and all this stuff, and my free form uh, poetry, she actually published in the school paper. And from that point, I really didn't have a lot of acknowledgement. You know, I got good grades, but you know, it just, it didn't really matter to me until she actually took an active uh, interest in me and just saying that, you know, I'm special, you know, and it just really stuck with me. So shout out to Ms. Blackmore. If you listen to the podcast, I love you, thank you. And um, you know, it's so crazy that parallel, that eighth grade, really kind of set our trajectory like that. That's amazing, man. Thank you, Ms. Kohler, if you're listening, if you're still alive. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Teachers are amazing. Sister Act. All right, Sister Act 3. So one of the most fascinating things, I want to dive into some of these reasons why folks are able to, you know, have longer careers and what we need to look at, like some of the things that's going on behind the scenes that might rob us of that. And you shared in the book that, because we tend to think, it's, it's, you know, because of um, loss of muscle, for example, we lo- we're losing strength as you get older. But you say it's not a loss of strength, it's a loss of power is one of the issues. So can you talk about that? Yeah, power is the uh, ability to generate force in a, in a, a short period of time. So, you know, if you think, uh, if, you can, if you can lift up uh, a 100 yard, 100 pound barbell, you know, that takes strength. But to kind of explosively throw a 100 pound barbell, uh, that would be that would be power. That's the difference. You know, it's a, someone demonstrated it for me. Like it's the difference between, he said, he said, you know, tap your finger on your chest and now take it and pull it back and go like that. That's power. And you lose power because, uh, you know, you have these quick, quick twitch muscle fibers and right. slow twitch muscle fibers. And they, um, as you, as you age, um, your muscle fibers don't, um, don't reproduce as well. They, they, they die off basically your, your motor units. Um, but they die off at different rates. The, the quick twitch ones, 
are uh, don't age as well, basically. Yeah. Um, and there's there's different possible reasons for that. But the the result is that athletes in power sports, um, you know, that involve kind of sprinting or you know hitting a baseball, anything like that. Um, they're, they tend to have earlier career peaks than athletes in endurance sports like marathoning or distance swimming, right. uh, things like that. Right. That's so fascinating. And so one of the things we need to possibly look at is training for power, I would assume. So do we have some examples of folks who are doing that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, somebody that I talked to, for instance, there's uh, John Wellborn, uh, who who you know runs a company called Power Athlete. He's a um, he's a former, he was in the NFL for 10 years as a lineman and now he's, uh, as an offensive lineman. And now he's basically like a, like a power coach guru. This is, this is his whole thing. And a lot of the, a lot of the training methods and technologies, uh, that I talked about and that I, and that I, you know, researched in the course of writing this book have to do with maintaining that, that power. I mean, in, in some ways it's, it's, the key to having the sort of physiology and and strength profile of a younger athlete. Yeah, yeah. And you gave the example several times. You you speckled in examples of Meb, yeah, who is this uh, incredible long distance runner. So, and he had this kind of surprise victory at a big race. Can you talk a little bit about that? Meb Kaflesky is his name. He is uh, he he is an American uh, American runner. He was born in Eritrea, and he was the guy who won the Boston Marathon in 2014 uh, when he was 38. He had this he has this amazing backstory which is that uh Nike several years before that had dropped his sponsorship. He was like 33, 34 and they said, "Okay, it looks like this guy is, you know, probably he's won a couple Olympic medals, but we think he's probably past his prime, so they mm. cut his sponsorship." Wow. And for Meb, he's so competitive, this just lit a fire under his butt and he said, "I'm going to show I'm going to show Nike." Yeah. So, he, he had this amazing second act to his, his career where in um in 2014, um, Boston Marathon, you know, he was he was lined up against all these guys who were, who were on paper they were much faster than him, much faster, like five six minutes faster than him, you know, all all much younger than him too, but he went out and he ran this race that was just strategically brilliant. He he uh, he checked the conditions beforehand and he said, here's the strategy I'm going to follow, and he basically everyone else underestimated him, and he opened this big gap on all his competitors, uh, and by the time they realized what was going on. You know, everyone sort of wrote him off. They said, oh, this 38-year-old who's who's nowhere near the fastest guy in this race, there's no way, you know, he's going to be able to keep this pace. Yeah. And by the time they, they caught, you know, it was the rabbit in the hair, they, uh, the, the tortoise in the hair. By the time they figured out what was going on, it was, it was too late. So I'm curious, was there anything in his training that allowed him to kind of have that power to push through like that? One of the things that Meb's coach, uh, Bob Larson, who, who I, I talked to also, uh, he, he said that one of the things that differentiates Meb from other runners he's worked with is that he's very, um, he does everything. He's, he's, he takes a very diverse approach to his training. So a lot of runners, he said, just want to go and do miles, 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 miles. But Meb does the strength work. He does a, a lot of cross training. So he's not just out there, you know, running his body into the ground. And he... Uh, he takes a very serious professional approach to recovery uh, and mobility exercises. He's like a he's like a great 360. I mean, the reason I started the book with him yeah. is so much of what uh, is covered in the rest of the book you can see integrated in Meb's success. Uh-huh. But that that especially the cross training, the strength work he does um, for someone who is is his age, you know, that is in many ways the key to why he's still as fast as he is. That's that's such a great example. I didn't even think about that in the fact that he's so, in a way, complete. So is that, just to kind of foreshadow a little bit, is this something we need to be ideally looking towards is more cross-training versus being so specific in our sport? Yeah, cross So the, the thing about cross-training is, you know, at that level of sport, you do need to do really large volumes, especially if, if you're competing in something like marathon. I mean, there's no substitute for volume, yeah. you know, in an, in an endurance sport. But... Um, there, there are good training stresses and there are bad training stresses. So, what cross training? Cross training is just one way to say to to give your body more of the good training stresses it needs to adapt and grow stronger, but minimizing the um, unnecessary, you know, repetition that does things like um, you know can can wear down your cartilage, can uh, you know stress your body in in other ways that could lead to overtraining or unnecessary injuries. Got it, got it. So, and can you define cross-training for us too? 
Yeah, uh, I think cross training, you know, it can it can be a lot of different things, but it's it's basically just um, you know specific training that's not uh, that's not your your sport. You right. Know? Yeah. Simple. Simple. So yeah, my my favorite example of cross training uh, is this guy Alex Martins lives uh, lives right here in San Francisco, just a couple miles away. He's a he's a, a big wave surfer. And he competes at uh, at Mavericks, which is the premier big wave competition in the world. Um, really interesting sport because so many of the top competitors in it are, are in their 40s. And what I learned from Alex is that a lot of these guys, they train doing in the off season doing jujitsu because in in big wave surfing, the really you know your biggest competitor is the ocean. It's the, these incredibly powerful waves that if you ever wipe out, you know, you basically get sucked 20 feet under the water and it's like being in a wrestling match with somebody who's so much bigger and stronger and, you know, trying to wrench your body and hold you down until, uh, you know, for, for two or three minutes at a time. So what these guys do is jujitsu because it, it trains them to um, slow down their breathing and keep control of their bodies so they don't get into any, you know, vulnerable compromised positions where they can get injured. And, um, and basically just slow down and, and be able to solve uh, problems in this highly stressed state. It's like this perfect example, this yeah. perfect cross between very specific training, but also cross training where you're not just going out and you know surfing a hundred times a year because you can't do that on big waves. Yeah, wow. And you're also bringing some gifts back to that other sport as well. Yeah. That's really awesome. Man, that's such a good example. Um, I want to talk about some more of the physiology of the aging athlete and something you kind of highlighted throughout the book. And one of the things you mentioned was the activation of the antagonist muscle. As folks get a little bit older, the antagonist muscle is is turning on a little bit more when it ne shouldn't necessarily be turning on. So let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So uh, this was this was something a paper that came out about uh, about three years ago. I think I identified this, and it was looking at the different reasons that. Uh, as you get older, you you experience um, you, you tend to I should say on average people experience a decline in muscular strength and force production, and uh, this this one guy looked at what he called co-activation of the antagonist muscle. So the idea is basically you know every every muscle you have there is an opposing muscle. So you curl you know you do a biceps curl your bicep is firing right. and your tricep is supposed to be relaxed. Right. But as you get older, you're tricep is firing more and more as you're doing this action. So it actually takes more strength from your bicep if you want to curl uh, to do that curl. So your body is literally working against you Crazy. as you get older. And it's not totally clear why. It might have something to do with joint stabilization, preventing, yeah. uh, preventing injuries, but uh, really fascinating finding. Absolutely. And that's the thing, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of the stuff that our bodies do it's kind of trying to help us in a way you know and but it can look like a problem like why is it doing this to me you know for you know autoimmune conditions a lot of times you know a lot of people those it's like why would my cells attack each other you know why would my own cells attack me and one of the things that happens is this molecular mimicry is one of the things you know so folks might you know um just be just going ham on whole wheat bread and it can bring in these compounds that can essentially get them get work their way into your gastrointestinal tract but get through that lining of the gut and everybody's kind of heard about leaky gut condition now but the issue is when these whole proteins or foreign proteins can get into your bloodstream when only broken down particles should get in and so your immune system is going to go and attack those foreign invaders and that's all good it should do that but the problem is that some of those compounds because they're in a whole form of a protein look very similar to other whole tissues in the body so it might be a chain of like, you know, amino acids, just give an example, BBAA, and it'll go break that foreign invader down. But your thyroid might have a chain of BBAA. And so your immune system is going and attacking your own thyroid, thinking that it's helping you, you know? So um, with the body, just keep that in mind that it's usually trying to find a way to help you. It might not end up the best for us, but if we can look at like, what's the root cause, try to do some preventative stuff, try to um, address it in a more intelligent way, like you're talking about in the book. I think that we can make do a lot of good. You know, that that's something that you really see when you look at uh, at life extension. I mean, this is only a small part of the book, but I, but I, I uh, talk to some of these people who are researching radical human life extension, how to get you know people to live to be 120, 150, you know, a yeah. thousand, and uh, a lot of these mechanisms. The, the so the mechanisms 
that that cause cell death, that cause basically you know aging and your cells to stop uh, re- regenerating after a certain amount of time. They're there because if they if they weren't there, you w- would have runaway cell growth, which cancer can, is cancer basically yeah. right. So they say you know we can we can figure out how to turn these mechanisms off, but what we can't figure out is how to how to turn them off and not have you die of cancer. Yeah, that's such a good example. That apoptosis. This we have the Hayflick limit, and after a certain amount of replications. It's the program cell death is supposed to happen to prevent that from happening. You know these, and that's what cancer cells do. They they behave the way that they want to in a way. You know they don't abide by that command for them to stop growing. Man, it's such a good example. And I know like Aubrey de Grey. Yeah. Yeah. So he is he in this area? I think too. He is in this area. In fact, yeah. He's uh, I I met him at one of these conferences. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting fella, right there to say the least. So I want to talk about exercise just general you know this is in many ways kind of considered this virtual fountain of youth so from your experience and the things that you've learned how important is us just if we're talking about being able to be functional as we get older what role does exercise play for us oh it's i mean it's everything exercise is uh um i i think it's it's Increasingly being recognized as the key to uh, as the key to healthy aging. I mean, it it uh, you know everything from just kind of maintaining strength and mobility as you as you age to avoid things like um, falls. You know, once you right. once you are in your your seventies and eighties and and you know may have some osteoporosis. I mean, that's that's a uh, um, a significant cause of death for for people in that age group. But um, the amazing thing about exercise is it is it really does. Um, trigger in the body the the mechanisms that that reproduce i mean physiologically exercise is youth you know it yeah. it it resets uh gene expression in a way that that causes your uh your your hormone uh your hormone production you know your other blood factors to be indistinguishable from those of a, from the, those of a young person i mean right. they can they yeah. when they look at uh, something called uh, you know your fitness age mm-hmm. you know somebody who is very fit in their 50s can have the exact same biomarkers and the same life expectancy as somebody a healthy person in their 20s right it's crazy and amazing and you just said it. it's just how exercise is just one of those things i think it really makes us human it's a part of being human you know your genes expect you to move mm-hmm. and if we're neglecting that then man we set in place the opposite this kind of accelerating aging process. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, and this is and this is something where your genes expect you to move is a great way to put it because we are just starting to to understand uh, like the epigenetics, basically, right. like all the all the stuff that that goes on with uh, gene expression and you know protein uh, protein formation in your Talk cells. Talk about gray matter as well, and 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 gray matter, and they don't even know they don't even know why, but uh, but basically, yeah, it turns out that. That exercise, especially intense exercise, is as, as far as preserving uh, your volume of, of gray matter in your brain. Um, you know, basically the stuff that makes you human. Uh, exercise is just as effective as things like doing, you know, playing chess or playing bridge or doing crossword puzzles. You know, we yeah. we we understand it makes intuitive sense why using your brain for advanced cognition, uh, you know, use it or lose it, why that why it helps you preserve that matter, but. We don't totally understand why exercise has the same effect, but it does. Yeah, man. And by the way, so the gray matter, this is part of the central nervous system, uh, glial cells, uh, neuronal cell bodies, synapses, uh, the synaptic clefts, all this connection. There's so much going on with gray matter and you develop more support, um, your gray matter and, and not losing it by exercising. So please, please make this a call to action that no matter what, we're getting some movement in not just for the physical benefits, because a lot of times we exercise because we're trying to get sexy, you know, that's, but that's kind of a side effect. It's not the main objective. The main objective is keeping our brains young and keeping our bodies, you know, like you said, those biomarkers significantly younger just by getting into movement. So you said that also in the book, and I thought this was huge, this was such an aha moment for me, is that you talked about this concept of compensation Right, compensation, and you said that the very best athletes are great at compensation. So we have these kind of faulty functional patterns, and then we start to build on a shaky foundation. So what's that all about? Compensations arise in your movement when you have some kind of uh, limitation that forces you to do something in a different way. Yeah. Often it's the result of 
of a past injury. So, you know, let's say you have a really classic example. Let's say you sprained an ankle and you didn't really get it rehabbed and now the ankle doesn't really move that well, but you know, you still have to jump, you know, you're, you're a basketball player. You still got to get up there for those rebounds. So somehow you got to be able to, you know, get down low and gather your power and, and, and jump up. Well, if that ankle's not moving like it should be, you're going to find some extra range of motion in your knee. And you're going to do that by moving your knee in a way that you're not, that it's not designed to move. Uh, that's a compensation. And over, over time, you know, it doesn't just make you, uh, more likely to injure yourself, but it can also rob an athlete of, of some of their power because, um, you know, what they call uh, movement efficiency, basically how efficiently your body transfers energy between one part of, uh, what's your kinetic chain to another part of, of your uh, kinetic chain, you know, from your, from your, your feet to your knees, to your hips, to your back, so forth. Um, that, uh, basically compensations rob you of movement efficiency, Mm, man. So, so good. You know what? And you've also, you've got the scientists, you know, these are some of the people you talk to for the book who are looking at players doing basic fundamental movements and they can kind of give you a, a preview, like this guy's not going to last long unless we fix this. This is a really fascinating topic. I spent a lot of time uh, in the book on it because I really wanted to understand what's going on. There is this emerging field uh, and there's a, a bunch of technology companies that are trying to definitively establish the link between uh, between movement and an injury risk. They are using things like uh, 3D motion capture, like you use to render actors in a video game, or uh, force plates that capture the force that you put into the ground while you jump. And they're, they're taking that data, using machine learning to try to establish uh, patterns that result in, in injuries. And then they're, they're trying to train athletes out of those patterns, whether it's by uh, doing body work on them that eliminates the, their, you know, that incre- improves their range of motion or teaching them different neuromuscular habits. Uh, really fascinating stuff. A bunch of companies here that are that are competing to sort of be, you know, the leader and set the gold standard in it. And even though it's a field that's very much in its infancy, it's such an incredibly valuable thing to be offering to athletes and, right. and teams that, you know, it's already a, 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 a economically big industry. Wow. I thought it was such an interesting crossover because immediately when you mentioned in the book, I'm thinking about, you know, the video games or like the Avengers or, you know, when they're doing the motion capture and just like it, it was so Captain Obvious that why don't we do this to actually find out what's going on with our bodies, you know, and it's so, so cool. So up next, I want to talk about what are some of the things we can get from the from the people that we see as our heroes in sports, some of the things that they're doing to play on, to play longer, to play better as we get older. So what are some of the things we can pull from their stories and implement in our own lives? And we're gonna do that right after this quick break. So sit tight, we'll be right back. Don't sleep on sleep. Today, there is a big revolution happening to improve our sleep quality because we're understanding finally just how much our sleep quality impacts our physical performance, our brain function, and literally impacts our body composition. Sleep deprivation is something that can directly lead to increased fat gain and an inability to lose weight as well. With great sleep, we see an increased ability to burn fat, like the research that was done by the International Association for the Study of Obesity that found that our sleep quality, namely a sleep-related hormone called melatonin that everybody's heard of, increases your body's production of something called brown adipose tissue. This is a type of fat that actually burns fat. And the reason that it's brown versus the white adipose tissue is brown adipose tissue has a lot more mitochondria. And these are the energy power plants in our cells, very metabolically active tissue that we build more of when we get great sleep. Now, the issue today is getting that great sleep. And there's tons of lifestyle factors, but there's also a nutrition component. And there's a study that was published in the journal Pharmacology, Biochemistry, and Behavior that found that the renowned medicinal mushroom reishi was able to number one, significantly decrease sleep latency. This means you fall asleep faster when you have reishi. They also found that this increased overall sleep time for study participants. And they found that this increased the sleep efficiency by improving the non-REM deep sleep and improving our light REM sleep as well. This comprehensive approach to improving sleep, it's not pounding our sleep into submission, what we see with conventional 
drugs and things of that nature where it's kind of like pseudo sleep this is actually improving your sleep quality your sleep efficiency by utilizing reishi now the only reishi that i use is from four sigmatic because it's dual extracted where they're doing an alcohol extract and a hot water extract so they're actually extracting all of the nutrients from the mushroom that you think you're getting with company x all right you're actually getting those compounds with the hot water extract, you're getting the beta-glucan-related compounds. And then with the alcohol extract, you're getting more of the hormonal compounds. And I think these are really important for sleep, like the terpenes and things in that category and so much more. So make sure to use foursigmatic.com forward slash model to get your hands on this and so much more. So that's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash model. You get 15% off their Rishi Elixir and all of their medicinal mushroom elixirs, coffees, hot cocos, and so much more. I love Four Sigmatic. I literally have them every single day, one of their different products. Today I had my Lion's Mane coffee mix. So, so good. And it has all of these benefits as well. If you're still drinking standard coffee, what are you doing? You need to get these benefits from the Four Sigmatic coffee mixes. Now, head over and check them out ASAP because these are absolutely game-changing. The coffee mix, great for in the morning. Rishi, great for in the evening and winding down. And they've got all of this research to back it up. And this is what it's all about, is having more education so that we're executing on the things that really do work, that have a clinically proven benefit, and we can actually enjoy ourselves and have a good time along the way. And again, that's foursigmatic.com forward slash model for 15% off everything. And now back to the show. All right, we're back and we're talking with Jeff Berkovici about his new book, Play On, which you definitely need to have in your library like yesterday. It's such a great book, so fascinating. Really, really a page turn. I just went through the book uh, from cover to cover and absolutely loved it. So guys, before the break, we talked about, so our heroes in sports, you know, some of the people that we look up to, some of the people that we marvel at, like how are they able to do this? How are they able to do this so long? And one of the people that you brought up in the book, which I was pleasantly uh, pleased with, was Donald Driver. All right, I'm a big Green Bay fan from the video game. All right, no disrespect to anybody out there, any other teams, you know. But when I was playing Madden, I rolled with Green Bay. All right, so no disrespect. But Donald Driver, go-to receiver, you know. And you talked about him in the book. I was shocked. To, I didn't even know he was their all-time receiver. So what was so special about him that you used him as an example in the book? He was their all-time receiver because of what was so special about him, which was he played so many years, uh, like like 16 years, and had almost no injuries. He 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 lost incredibly small number of games to injuries, uh, despite playing a position. You know, he was a slot receiver right. where he took a lot of punishment going across the middle of the field. Um, you know, he said he said uh, one of the first pieces of advice he got when he joined the Packers was yeah. uh, from Antonio Freeman, yeah. who said, "If you want to make it in the NFL, you got to go across the middle." So, yeah. driver, you know, not a huge guy, um, not the fastest guy in the world. And he just did it by being by being tough and by not getting hurt. So, I, I was interested in knowing what he attributed his longevity to, yeah. um, and and his answers were were really interesting. But I think a huge part of it came came back to this trend that that I've seen spreading throughout all parts of the sports world over the last like 15 years, which is a much more uh, sophisticated approach to to fitness that really, instead of maximizing for fitness, you know, instead of saying kind of bigger, faster, stronger, more is more, it it balances fitness and freshness. Interesting. That, you know, um, when, when you talked about Donald Driver, you said specifically there were some he had an approach to training that was different from other folks in the NFL. Like it was kind of surprising to even know that he was doing this because he didn't even start like doing the heavy weightlifting until later on. So what was he doing that helped to kind of build his foundation? He had this training program that he sort of came up with uh, on his own uh, that he basically did these short high intensity sessions, like 40 minutes to an hour workouts. He'd do it like three times a week and it was, it was, you know, you you might call it plyometrics. I mean, a lot of it was a lot of it was plyometric. You know, fast jumping, fast uh, running, um, bounding footwork. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he he said he did it because you know he he didn't he didn't he didn't like weightlifting. Yeah. And he said that the, the main thing that mattered to him was kind of you know foot speed and fast recovery. But when you look at it now, you know, I mean, this was 
15, 20 years ago he was doing this. When you look at it now against the background of all the research that's come out since then about the benefits of high-intensity interval training, you know, uh, small-volume, high-intensity work, uh, it, it's, it's predicted a lot of, I think, what we've seen, what we've seen since then. So if you could, I would love to talk a little bit more about Fresh as a New Fit and what that kind of entails. So there's been this transformation over the last really like 15 years. I mean, you, you could go back even farther than 15 years. You could go back 30 or 40 years to the roots of the professionalization of, of, uh, of sports. You know, before like the 70s, most athletes were, they, they, had, they had jobs on the side. They were sort of, you know, very fit, regular people. Um, and then starting in like the 70s and you know 80s, depending on what sport you're talking about, uh, people started training more seriously, more scientifically. Um, you know, sports that had been part of the year became year round. National markets became international markets, and what you saw is basically athletes turned into superheroes. You know, everybody everybody got very you know muscled up and hyper fit, but uh, injuries kept injury rates in sports kept going up and the average length of athletes careers was not really increasing right um fascinating so yeah. what's happened since then is um a, a number of kind of coaches and sports scientists have been preaching the importance of, of freshness basically saying that uh that what what leads to uh, unnecessary injuries and and unnecessary decreases in performance especially as athletes get older is the accumulation of fatigue and that training uh, training really needs to take into account the accumulation of fatigue, because if players aren't fresh, you know, if they're not if they're not rested and recovered yeah. from their efforts, no matter how fit they are, they're not playing their best, and they're and they're more likely to get injured. Um, so this is something that you know it's not a it's not rocket science. Like it's right, always been exactly. it's always been known that you can't overtrain. The problem was it's very easy to to design a structured training program. You know what you'd call a a, a periodized training program in a sport like a marathon where you know you have one event and you have four months to train for it and you can gradually ramp up your workouts and in intensity and volume uh, to peak at the right time but to do that in a sport like basketball where you know you might have games every other night for for six months they just didn't know how to do it yes. so about 15 years ago is when um, you saw, for instance, Greg Popovich at the Spurs start saying, well, I'm going to rest my healthy players during the season because I think they play better when they're a little bit fresher and a little more rested. Um, again, sounds like so obvious, such conventional wisdom, but actually anybody who was watching basketball at the time remembers it was hugely controversial. Right. The fans hated it. The, uh, you know, the, on ESPN, they were blasting him all the time. He was getting fined by the league for doing it. They said, you know, you're ripping off the people who, who bought tickets, but the results of it were incredible. You know, the, the Spurs started, they were contending for championships every year. They had the lowest injury rate in the league and they're doing it with the oldest roster in the league. So at that wow. point, everyone, every other coach in basketball looks at, at uh, Popovich and says, you know, these guys are doing something right. right. And now it's the conventional wisdom. That transformation that we've seen in the NBA, if you take that and project that out across all sports, I think that's the single most powerful force we've seen that's extending athletes' careers. Oh, man, I love that so much. It, just looking at the results, thank goodness that he got those results, you know, so that we can, because again, it's it seems so obvious, but it's a business as well. And if we see, for example, in the NBA that uh, folks are staying around longer, they're playing better, just by giving them some smart rest and recovery, you know, so fresh is a new fit. I love, in my book, Sleep Smarter, I talk about uh, Usain Bolt and him coming out and saying that sleep is a part of his training program because it helps his body to really uh, integrate with the training that he does. Like he has this knowledge base that how important it is, you know, the recovery portion. He's literally the fastest human ever, right? It's just, but now, and the, the more data coming out, it's just it's just really, really cool to see. Yeah, and not just data, but but the athletes, I mean, you know, think about who who their biggest influencers are are people like Usain Bolt you know when when they yeah. hear Usain Bolt saying saying that or when they hear Roger Federer saying that he tries to sleep 12 hours a night during tournaments and they hear LeBron James I mean you know you saw this whole postseason every press conference he gave after every game he was saying I gotta go get my treatment I'm gonna start my recovery protocol you know yeah. when they hear that over and over and over again that's when they really start to internalize it you know athletes used to brag about how hard they worked out, right? You mm -hmm. know, Kobe Bryant does these blackout workouts. 
-hmm. Now, what they brag about is actually how much sleep they get, how good they are at napping. I mean, that's like, that's a sea change. That is, and it's, it becomes a part of the culture, and that's what's so beautiful about it. Uh, another thing that, uh, just take a step back with Donald Driver, that you mentioned with his training, um, there's some research indicating that, you know, doing these high intensity intervals and uh, doing things like these explosive movements like box jumps helps to uh, improve our proprioception, right? Can you talk about that? Yeah, that one. That one's really interesting to me. Um, so proprioception is your body's awareness of itself in space, basically. Yeah. And there's a, a fair amount of, of research showing that Things that build proprioception, like, for instance, um, using a wobble board, you know, a, a balance board, um, doing exercises on, um, you know, on, on one side isolaterally rather than rather than doing them with, uh, you know, doing basically doing exercises standing on one foot. Uh, things like that seem to have a really strong protective effect against, for instance, lower leg injuries. So you think about, you know, your life as an NFL receiver. What are you worried about? Uh, ankle injuries are are the the you know the number one type of injury at that position. Um, ACL tears, hamstrings. So it seems like he, again, driver you know just kind of working out on his own, listening to his own body, yeah. came by this program that naturally conferred really powerful uh, injury prevention benefits for him, and that has something to do with how he played as long as he did without pretty much ever getting hurt. Wow. And speaking of proprioception, one of my favorite parts of the book is when you talk about the brain-body connection and how your your brain, so sometimes when folks are having these injuries, it's the brain, uh, there's, there's some kind of a block in the information getting to that part of the body. So stepping off a curb the wrong way and not ex expecting the, the, the ground to be where it is. Can you talk about that? Yeah, this, this researcher named Buzz Swanick is the guy that I learned about this from. He studies cognitive factors in uh, cognitive factors and injury proneness. And when I saw he was giving a talk on that, I said, cognitive factors and injury proneness? What, is, what does your brain have to do with whether you get injured? And he, he so he's looking at um, basically how your brain anticipates, uh, anticipates situations and models uh, a, a muscular response to those situations. Right. And his his hypothesis was when you have these non-contact injuries, these like freaky non-contact injuries, and you know, say that you, you watch somebody tear his ACL and go down in a heap, and there's yeah. no one standing around him. What happened? His hypothesis was that's your your brain getting surprised by what happened, you know, incorrectly modeling the situation, preparing the wrong muscular response, and uh, and then your your joints aren't prepared for the forces that are put on them. Mm. Uh, so he looked at. Uh, basically what cognitive processing speed has to do, how, how, how that is a factor in, uh, in injury prevention. He looked at people who, he actually gave athletes, um, football, college football players, IQ tests. And what he found is that the worse people performed on an IQ test, the more likely they were to get to suffer a non-contact injury during the season. Um, and his, his interpretation of that was basically your cognitive, you know, the, the more, the faster you process information, uh, the better your body can protect itself. And mm. the reason that I found that so interesting for this book is because the m older you get, the more experience you get in your sport, especially in a complex sport like football or basketball or soccer, your brain processes, that turns into an advantage in information processing. Your brain does this thing called chunking where it lumps together related pieces of information so it can process them faster. Yeah. So you know, a quarterback in football is able to read the field in those three seconds before the snap so much better after five years than so much better after 10 years. So you look at somebody like Tom Brady, why is he able to stay so healthy in the NFL? It's because he, he's been reading the field for so long. He sees twice as much information in that amount of time as anybody else sees. And that means when a guy comes and tackles him from his blind side, his brain knew that was going to happen. He's more prepared for that collision than somebody, than a rookie. And he's less likely to get hurt. So fascinating. And somebody like Peyton Manning as well, you know, being able to win a Super Bowl when he's definitely, you know, like his arm strength had went down so much. And you talked about him in the book, too, and gave a really great example of him getting some work done to get adjusted in the way he performed. Yeah, I talked to this guy, Mackie Shillstone, who works with he worked with Peyton. Uh, he works with Serena Williams. He calls himself the career extender because he's because there's so many athletes where he is you know, come to them at the last, in sort of the last phase of their careers and helped them 
them um, find another gear and, 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 you know, reach a new level in their performance. So Peyton, he, he, he came to Peyton. Peyton uh, had, you know, had a few injuries in the last part of his career uh, that were really limiting his, his arm strength. You remember he had all these neck surgeries and he basically didn't have any zing on his fastball anymore. And so what Mackey did was put him on a balance beam in a gym. He said, you know, your problem is you're used to being tall and able to see the whole field. And so you're standing up tall and you're throwing. He said, you're not getting your power from your core and your legs. So I'm going to make you stand on this balance beam until you can throw a football on a balance beam as well as you can standing on the ground. Uh, and that was his that was his mantra. That was basically Peyton Manning spent his last season before his, his you know, winning his Super Bowl standing in a high school gym in New Orleans throwing footballs off a balance beam. Wow. He Miyagi'd him. <laughs> he totally Miyagi'd him. That's awesome. That's really awesome. So we can't not talk about the mental side of this you know when we talked about some of the technical parts of the brain but what about the mental approach as far as us being able to you know uh, pull some things from these great athletes and the way that they approach the game mentally or approach life mentally that allows them to continue on this is probably my favorite topic in the book because the applicability is so wide you know it's for it's for everyone I mean, the thing that that I heard when I talked to sports psychologists about how are these athletes different? You know, people who spend 20, 25 years at the very top of their sport, how are they different? And what I heard is it's it comes down to joy. You know, they they have they're able to kindle and nourish this sense of joy in what they do for an incredibly long amount of time, you know, which sounds like it might be you know maybe that's like trite or a pat answer but it's not at all when you think about what goes into an athlete's career you know these are people who from the time they're you know 12 15 years old they're told you have to approach your sport like a job you know you have to go to bed at the same time every night you have to watch you know everything that you eat you have to get up at 5 a.m and do all this work like they're tr- there it's not a game to them it's a job yeah. and yet someone like roger federer or someone like tom brady can managed to bring so much joy to that job that after doing it for 25 years, Tom Brady says, you know, after his Super Bowl, he said, he gave an interview, he said, there's two things that I really love to do, play football and prepare to play football. (laughs) That's like, that's a totally different mentality. You know, that's a, that's a one in a million kind of mindset. And, and that, you know, I mean, Brady's not, he's a tall guy, but, but he's not a physical, the, the fastest, the strongest that anything is, but that's the one in a million mentality. Wow. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So for us cultivating that that love of movement, finding something that we can embrace, that we can kind of carry with us into it and changing our just really changing our perception about this stuff. It's it's in the perception change is uh is intrinsic motivation. It's I mean, you know, what they'll say, what the psychologists will say is it's about being process oriented. You know, these guys, they they don't just love performing and winning they love every part of the process to the point that that Federer you know he he almost never had injuries in his career he's amazing that way but when he finally had to have surgery on his knee when he was like 35 his first surgery of his career he said you know I thought it was really interesting and fun I'd never had an injury before I'd never had to rehab it before that Mm -hmm. was so interesting again that's being process oriented in a way that allows you to have joy in every part of your job not just the fun parts that's I really hope people get that that is so so powerful you know there's so many other things I would love to ask you about but in summary for us to kind of take some things away for today you know you looked at all of these various recovery methods to find out like what actually kind of holds its weight and I mean you covered some crazy stuff too like people bathing in wine like I've never heard of anything like that you know but there are a couple of things that, that do look like they're, they're pro- very promising. But I think that everything has some value, if not for even the process like you just talked about and having that placebo effect. But what are some of the things that we can look at or just have our eye on for things that are going to help us to recover and to stay more fresh? Recovery is, I mean, that's probably been the biggest transformation in the way athletes train over the last 20 years has has uh, been the, the emphasis they put on recovery. You know, one one... Um, performance coach I talked to said, he said, a generation ago, we didn't even talk about recovery. And now, you know, everybody sees it as the third leg of the stool. It's it's on a par with, with training and nutrition. Um, 
I think that there that there is, you know, everybody wants to talk about cryotherapy, about, uh, you know, light therapy, um, infrared, infrared treatments. I mean, all of this stuff, there's some evidence that it works. You know, the evidence is kind of ambiguous. It comes from small studies that aren't the, you know, aren't the gold standard necessarily. What I would say, where I'd say it really has a value is that athletes at, at the top levels, they're really, really driven. You know, they, they want to do everything that they can do. They want to be working out, you know, they want to be, be improving their performance 24 hours a day. So a lot of these recovery tech, uh, techniques, you know, whether or not they have a huge benefit on the athlete's performance, what they do is they give them a channel to feel like they're doing something, you know, to put those energies into so that they're not sitting there in the gym overtraining and, you know, breaking themselves down. Right. And so what are some of those things, those cornerstone things with recovery, which they're going to probably be Captain Obvious answers? <laughs> well, the, the, the real cornerstones of recovery are sleep, yeah. uh, sleep, you know, refueling, nutrition, uh, refueling in, in, in the right way. And uh, I'd say active recovery is, you know, there's a lot of really good research around active recovery, you know, moving the right way after an effort so that you're um, you know, you're stimulating blood flow, you're clearing some of the by metabolic byproducts from your muscles. You know, after that, there's the best research around um, cold therapy, you know, basically cold tubs and, uh, and massage, which you mentioned before. Um, after that, it starts getting pretty speculative. But again, almost all of these things, you know, very few of these things have any harmful effect. Yeah. Um, you don't want to go overboard with something like, you know, maybe cryotherapy because, what you could be doing if you're doing cryotherapy after every single workout is actually tamping down your body's inflammatory response that right. it needs to have that um, muscle adaptation. Right. But for the most part, you can't really overdo it with recovery. Yeah, so great. So what about nutrition? You, you said nutrition, doing it the right way. There's a bunch of different things we could talk about, but one thing really stood out as far as nutrition, as far as something potentially like supplementation, if we want to look at it like that. And that was something that, um, there's there's a lot of data that's still even coming out. There's studies being done right now on collagen, gelatin. Let's talk about that. Yeah, a, a lot of data. A lot of it's coming um, from uh, not far from here at uh, UC Davis, where there's a guy named Keith Barr who has has uh, done and collated a lot of the research on on collagen and uh, the the role that dietary collagen plays in. Uh, in the healing and repair of tissues like, you know, connective tissues, basically. So tendons, ligaments, um, cartilage, he's also looked at. You know, uh, um, when one thing, obviously a big limiting factor for athletes as they get older is that you don't heal as quickly. Your body, you know, you're, you're relying on cells that just don't regenerate as rapidly as they used to. So supplementary collagen turns out to be something that can help accelerate that healing a little bit in those slow growth tissues like, like tendons and cartilage and all you really need to do is just get that collagen in your diet any way you can it doesn't matter if it's gelatin um, bone broth which i love is really yeah. delicious or even just literally like if you're eating a chicken you know a chicken wing just like chew up some of that nice gristle in the middle of the bone uh, that has the same effect share the story about kobe and the bone broth kobe and the bone broth yeah he's i mean a lot of people heard about bone broth for the first time because kobe you know when he was getting into his uh his sort of late 30s, he'd had a lot of problems with uh, his Achilles tendons. You know, uh, he'd, he'd had uh, torn them a couple times and had surgery. So he, I mean, Kobe is, if you're trying to learn about new sports science, you hear the name Kobe every five minutes because everything that's new and cutting edge, he's like the first guy who tries it, right? Uh, but for the last couple seasons of his career, every hotel that the Lakers stayed at, the chef an advanced person would go and teach the chef how to make Kobe's bone broth exactly the way that he wanted it. And he would have it. I think he drank it um, before games. And, uh, you know, every, I mean, I kind of, as a fan, the first time I heard this, I kind of thought, you know, this guy's crazy. It's Kobe's a little, a little nuts. Turns out the science is there. And we've had the person on the show who introduced Kobe to that protocol, Dr. Kate Shanahan, who's the kind of uh, team nutritionist for the Lakers. And I'll put that in the show notes. And yeah, just to hear that, so crazy, you know, but for an athlete like that, an athlete at that stature to do something like that, that consistently, you know, you would think that maybe there's something to it, you know, and now being able to look at some of the research. And so that's one of the big takeaways I want folks to kind of keep their eye on is where the science is going with collagen and utilization for that. 
in our workouts. Where do we place it? Is it post-workout, pre-workout? So those, that kind of stuff. So we'll definitely talk more about that here on the Model Health Show. But man, this has been so fascinating. Such, such great information. Um, can you let everybody know where they can find you online and also where they can pick up Play On? Uh, well, you can find me at my uh, at my website, which is um, Jeff Berkovici, uh, jeffberkovici.com. I'm on uh, Inc, Inc, inc.com. I cover science and technology, including a lot of um, fitness, uh, a lot of fitness tech, a lot of um, you know human performance uh, related topics. And uh, I'm on Twitter. I tweet way too much. But, uh, it's just uh, Twitter <laughs> slash uh, Jeff Berkovici. I love it, man. Thank you so much. Um, again, I, your book is one of my favorites of the year. Definitely like literally top two. And it's it's really well written and just dives in. I'm a very analytical person by nature, I think. And so you really spoke to my man brain on that stuff, but also just the storytelling, which really brings us in and makes us feel like we're part of the the experience as you're going around and talking to all these amazing people. So thank you for taking the time to write it. Well, thank you for, for connecting with me over it. I love it. Awesome, man. So final question, what is the model that you're here to set for other people with the way that you live your life personally? Oh, wow. Um, for me, the, I, I try to think about my life uh, in terms of uh, being engaged, you know, to, to uh, am, I, am I really interested in what I'm doing um, and, and always kind of challenging myself, you know, if I'm not, if I'm not engaged in what I'm doing, I try to move on and find something else that, that keeps me going, whether it's like emotionally engaged, you know, intellectually engaged. I just, uh, I think listening to that part of your brain that says I'm bored here, that, mm -hmm. that's really important. Ah, I love it, man. Thank you so much, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thank you. Everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. So be engaged. I mean, what he ended with is so powerful and so important. That's what life is really about. You know, we see this statistically when folks retire, right? You're already tired and we retire and losing that sense of engagement and a sense of purpose. We see our lifespan or, you know, the, the, the amount of days that you're going to have left on the planet just shoots down so quickly versus folks who continue to work and do uh, things that they love and the enjoy, enjoying engaging in community for a long time, having a longer lifespan. So we need to have something that we're engaged with and to be proactive with that. If you feel a loss of or a lack of engagement right now in your life, really pay attention to that because that's tied to your your life force in a way, in a really interesting way. So get engaged. Also being more process oriented. I don't think I could stress this enough. You know, we tend to be goal oriented, which is great. I want you to want stuff. I want you to be able to achieve, but it's the process. It's never the goal. I promise you, because once you get to the goal, I've met some of the most successful people walking around on planet Earth. And they will tell you many times when they thought achieving, you know, that hundred million dollar business or achieving the gold medal, whatever it is, that they would be fulfilled in their life. And they found that they were disappointed, you know, because it wasn't the thing, it was the process. And for you, it's Whatever your goal is, embracing that process and understanding that it's qualifying you, right? It's qualifying you for the achievement of that thing, you know? So keep that in mind. Find a way to fall in love with the process, right? Find a way. Because it's another thing you mentioned is that there's this love and Tom Brady having that mentality and that his love of the game is his competitive advantage. So bring that competitive advantage for yourself, whether it's in your family, in your finances, in your exercise, your health and fitness, in your relationship, find a way to love those things. I could tell you firsthand the things that my wife, when we first got together, it was cute. These little, these little quirks, like, oh, that's cute. Then they become annoying, right? It's like, why, are you serious? You know, this, these little small things. But I found a way to fall in love with them again, all right? Perfect example, she has this tendency to when I ask her, you know, I'll send her text like, hey, while you're at the store, pick up this thing for me, pick up some collagen for me, right? And she'll be like, sure, got it, sure thing. Sure enough, she gets home, the one thing I asked for, it's not there. It's happened more times than I could count, I promise. And that would make you probably wanna jump out a window, all right? But for me, over time, it just became like, oh, 
Anne's at it again. You got me. You got me. It became cute. I found a way to love even these kind of crazy things about my relationship. All right, I know she's not trying to set me up and make sure that I'm not getting that one thing that I want because she gives me so much more than that one thing. You know, so it's a little funny, kind of crazy off the side example, but find a way to fall in love with the process. Find something to love in your process of achieving your goal. All right, because that's what it's really all about. Last thing, and there's, again, so many things to pull from this episode, make sure that we're engaging in some high-intensity interval training and also things that increase that proprioception, you know, the ability for your brain to be aware of itself in space, your body to be aware of itself in space. It's one of the things that's going to keep you healthy and functional throughout your entire life, all right? So do those explosive movements, right? So getting on that bike and doing some sprints, doing some box jumps, uh, doing a little bit of sprinting, whether it's on you know a piece of gym equipment or out there on the track or you know on the grass and the football field, wherever it might be, get your body moving in, in these more explosive patterns because that's the thing that we tend to lose is the power, is the explosiveness. And learning from Donald Driver's example, if we add in some of these uh, powerful movements, doing things at a different level, working on uh, the proprioception by you know again doing things like box jumps then this is gonna help to set you up for some longevity as far as that's concerned, all right? So make sure that you're adding that in. All right, I've got an episode masterclass on high-intensity interval training that I did back in the day. We'll put that in the show notes. 15 different ways of doing high-intensity interval training plus the science behind it. So we're gonna talk about the various muscle fibers, the fast twitch, slow twitch, the intermediate fibers, all that stuff. You get a good masterclass on how all that stuff works, how to recruit these, the different motor units. We'll get nerded out but we'll do it in a way that you're gonna enjoy because you know how we do it. All right, so I appreciate you so much. If you got a lot of value out of this, make sure to share it out with your friends and family on social media. Share it on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Make sure to tag Jeff. Let him know what you thought about the show, all right? And definitely head out and pick up Play On. We've got some incredible episodes coming up for you, so make sure to stay tuned, all right? Take care, have an amazing day, and I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.